0: Good morning again. Thanks for being here. I'm Walter. I'm the Teaching in Small Groups minister. And as a church, we are headed toward Easter. Easter is super early this year. It's in the month of March. And uh, it's just over the horizon. We've got some life to do between now and then, but I can't believe how close Easter is. Now, as a church, we are walking with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And And looking at the last week of Jesus' life before his execution, before his crucifixion, and and for him as well, Easter was just over the horizon. But before then, he had to face the cross. And before then, there was this whole week of teaching and living he had to do with his disciples where he was communicating what was most important. He knew his time with them was short and he had a lot to teach them so that they could carry on their mission. Now, death continued to loom large over that week for Jesus. And, you know, death comes for all of us, but it doesn't hold us all. It certainly didn't hold Jesus who rose from that grave. And it won't hold you and me if we've given our allegiance to Jesus. But death does come for us all in this life. And some of us, like Jesus, are given the chance to see it coming and to make a final statement or to, to tell people or to convey some knowledge or things that we think others need to know. The ancient philosopher Epicurus was just one such of these, one of these people, and, and he, he's somebody who's, who's known to have written many, many volumes of work, something like 300 volumes of work. And on his deathbed, he made a final statement, and he said, now farewell and remember all my words, which is an understandable sentiment, because if you're a philosopher and if you're you know, into words, you're... Going to want people to remember you. There's one tiny problem for Epicurus, though, in that of his supposed 300 volumes of work, we only retain three letters today that are fully intact. Oh, the irony there. Now farewell and remember all my words, and then we as humanity have lost all of his words. That's not the case for Jesus, though. Jesus' words have been recorded and remembered and shared time and time again throughout history. And they bring us comfort and peace and wisdom, except for the times when they don't. Last week, we talked a little bit about some teachings of Jesus that are are difficult, to say the least. And we looked at marriage and finances, and we talked about the unbreakable commitment and about how finances, instead of being an asset for us as followers of Jesus, are often a liability. Those are difficult teachings. Today, we're, we're going to go a little farther. There are some other teachings of Jesus that aren't just dif- difficult. They're puzzling. They may be offensive. In, in Matthew 15, Jesus basically calls a Gentile woman a dog. I'm going to let you read that one after church and form your own conclusions there. In John 12, Jesus has a discussion in which he says, Hey, forget about the poor right now and let this woman anoint me with this fine perfume worth, in today's dollars, about thirty dollars to $40,000 a year's salary. That money could have been used for the poor, but Jesus says, not right now. You'll always have the poor with you. We look at that and we think, okay, that's uh, kind of unsettling. There are other times when Jesus is puzzling and he says things that make us scratch our heads and say, what are you talking about, Jesus? Today's text, we're going to be in Mark 11, so turn there with me. Mark 11 is just one of these chapters in which Jesus says and does some controversial things. Now, as we read together today, we're going to find out that Jesus is continuing to communicate to his disciples just what's most important, but between where we are right now and when we arrive at that conclusion, we've got some strange actions and some strange words to go through. So Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 11, this is what happens. So Jesus came into Jerusalem and went to the temple. And after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. And then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree and full leaf a little way off. And so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. And then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say, Time out. We got to talk about this. What in the world was that? Was Jesus just having a bad day? He's frustrated. Maybe, like, Peter got up to some shenanigans again and had to be corrected. And now Jesus is carrying that around and he's mad and he sees this tree. Was the Son of the God of the entire universe feeling hangry this day? Like, what is going on? Clearly, something is going on here. Jesus says to this tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. He's mad at it. The disciples hear him say it. In the flow of this chapter, it just feels so strange. Because you got Jesus who just came in to this giant celebration in Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. All these people are, are shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus goes directly from that into the temple. He looks around the temple. Then he goes out to the suburbs to stay with his, his friends, Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha, most likely. And then he gets up the next day, and he's walking back to Jerusalem, and he sees this tree, and he stops, and he says, may no one ever eat your fruit again. I don't know what's going on here. And this makes me think of uh, last Sunday night. So we've got this class that we started last week, taught by Brian uh, Baldwin, and he's teaching it about Mark, and a bunch of you showed up, It it was really fun. If you didn't show up last week, you can still join us. Sunday nights, 5.30 to 6.30 out here in the Fireside Room. Brian said something. I'm going to paraphrase. I might get this a little wrong. But the the general idea was that Scripture, all Scripture is rational. It's this idea that we can read the words in our Bibles and understand them. Scripture might communicate mysteries. It might might show us, clue us into curiosities. But at a base level, it can be understood and comprehended. And yet I, I read this and I'm like, okay, Jesus was mad cuz he didn't get any figs and he shouted at this tree. Does this make sense? If Jesus is truly dialed into what's most important, then why is he stopping to yell at a plant? Well, let's let's keep reading. Verse 15. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the the tables and the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and the teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. All right, this is making a little bit more sense to me. Now, the previous section where Jesus yells at a plant, well, that's like you and me going to an apple tree in the month of May. It's just bloomed, blossoms have fallen off, and there are a bunch of leaves, and we're yelling at it because there's no apples there. It's not September yet. I mean, Mark very clearly says in that previous section, it was too early in the season for fruit, and yet Jesus is mad at this tree. Now, when he gets to the temple, it makes a little more sense, though, because there's all of this history that's going on here. When I was in Sunday school class, maybe you're this way, too. When I was in Sunday school class as a kid, we learned about the 400 years of silence between the last books of the Old Testament, Zechariah and Malachi, and the first books of of the New Testament. And, And we learned that, you know, God was silent for 400 years, and then Jesus appeared. Well, the people of Israel, the, the Jewish people, were, were not silent. They were still writing things during these 400 years of history, things that we don't consider to be canon or inspired works, but still they were writing things. And there's all of these things happening to their country. You know, the Jewish people came back from exile and they arrived in Jerusalem and they were allowed to, to rebuild their temple and rebuild the city. And yet during this time, they, they, weren't, they didn't have autonomy. They couldn't have a king And so they were kind of passed around from nation to nation, whoever was in power at a given time, you know, the Persians and then eventually the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and finally the Romans. And so what ended up happening is that because they they didn't have a palace or a king, the temple became their symbol of national identity. And it also became the seat of of their political power as as the high priest became more than just a, a religious leader, but also someone who had a lot of authority and and would work between the Jewish people and and whoever ruled them at whatever particular time. In Jesus' day, the the high priest had to be approved by the Romans. It It got to that point. And so there's all of this going on behind the scenes where the temple becomes this symbol and also a place to do some business. And you can imagine how that would have maybe started innocently enough at the beginning. People arrive in Jerusalem, they need to make sacrifices. And so Uh, there becomes a market with supplies for making sacrifices but apparently by jesus day it's it's gotten out of control and so this place that was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations has now become a den of thieves and they're carting merchandise through the temple courts and it's a political and and national symbol instead of a place to worship god and so jesus shows up and he makes a statement He says, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And his statement continues when he chases these people out of the the temple. And his message is basically this, the temple, the current temple system is ending, it's passing away, and in its place, Jesus is going to put up a new temple. Now let's see how things continue from here. Verse 19, that evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. And the next morning, as they passed the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed. It had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Okay, again. Jesus killed this tree. Like In 24 hours it dies. In Look, I've got no problems killing trees. I cut them down all the time. I throw them into my wood stove. I make nice fire for my house. It's good. I get that. But there's a purpose there, right? There's a purpose. I'm not just killing something to kill it. And in this this instance, what's going on here? Jesus killed a tree, a perfectly good tree. Was God being capricious? Was Jesus easily, that easily like pushed over the line that if something's going wrong in his life or he sees something that upsets him, he just extinguishes life? Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. In fact, if you start to, to read this chapter again, and I'm going to encourage you a couple times today, pick up Mark chapter 11 after church and read it and just let God's word settle in and, and see if you see some of the same things I'm seeing here. In Mark chapter 11, you've got this sequence of events. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem in, on day one, the triumphal entry, and he immediately goes to the temple, walks around, inspects it. He doesn't do anything, though. He takes off, heads out to the burbs, hangs out with his friends in Bethany. And then the next day, he wakes up day two. He's walking to Jerusalem. He sees this fig tree. He curses it, even though it wasn't the season for figs. And then he heads into the temple and he clears out the temple. He goes back out to the suburb. Day three, he wakes up, passes by this fig tree. It's dead. And then he goes on into the temple. And the next couple chapters are Jesus in the temple courts. And here's what I know about Jesus. He was the master of the parable. These earthly stories with heavenly meaning, you've probably heard of them. Beyond the master of the parable, though, I think Jesus was really the master educator. And so he used dialogue, he used lecture, and all the tools that we would think of in, in teaching someone, but also he used word pictures, and object lessons, and even his own actions. And in in this instance, which is confusing to me and has confused me many times in the past, I believe that Jesus was using this fig tree and the cursing of this fig tree as an example of what was happening with the temple and what God was about to do. Look, just like the fig tree, the, the temple looked beautiful on the outside. It was it was ornate, it was an architectural wonder. It had been recently refurbished by Herod the Great, and it was this symbol. It looked like it was alive. The fig tree, the same way, it was all leafed out. It looked beautiful. It had at least the potential for there to be fruit there. But in both instances, at the fig tree, there was no fruit. And in the temple, there also was no fruit. And, no, and both now were destined for destruction. You see, God wants authenticity. He doesn't want facade. He wants real, living, active faith not just a, a show of going through the motions. I believe that God wants fruit. And this reminds me all of the you know the, the, the time when God sends his prophet Samuel. It's a few hundred years earlier. And he sends his prophet Samuel out to, uh, to go find the next king of Israel. And so Samuel shows up at the house of Jesse. And he sees all of Jesse's sons. And the first son steps up. And Samuel thinks, man, this guy is king-like. He's probably tall and handsome and has just a, a kingly bearing. And he looks at him and God says, no, it's not this one. And so Samuel confused. He goes to the next one. Not as good as son number one, but son number two is still pretty good. Looks like he could be a king. And God says, no. And on down through the line, you've got son after son that, that God says, no, these are not the guy. Until you get to this scrawny, youngest, red-headed kid named David. He's just a child. and And God says, this is the one. And in the midst of that, there's a verse that, you should really memorize it's it's 1st Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 1st Samuel 16 verse 7 it goes like this the lord said to samuel don't judge by his appearance or his height for i have rejected him the lord doesn't see things the way that you see them people judge by outward appearance but the lord looks at the heart and those are words to commit to your memory People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God was looking at the heart, at the core of his people and the way that they worshipped in Jerusalem. I believe that God is looking for authenticity and faith then and he's looking for the same thing today. Not flashy expressions or flowery words, but God is looking for fruit. And I believe that healthy faith produces fruit i got a couple fruit trees in my yard. This, I think, is a picture we're going to show of, of my garden in August and a couple of my fruit trees. On the right there is, is uh, one of my fruit trees. Up to this point in my life, I've always loved apples. I've got a couple apple trees, and I take care of them. And, um, you know, you, you you prune them and fertilize them and, and spray them and, and do all the things. Apples, there's just nothing like an apple right off the tree at harvest time in September or October. I think it's it's... God's gift to mankind. The apples are so good. And I like apple crisp and apple butter and apple cider and apple sauce. And I like all the apple stuff. It's all really good. Now, up to this point in my life, I've got a couple pear trees in my yard. I've really thought that pears were an imposter apple. They don't get red. They don't ever get ripe like you think they should. They're either really hard or they're mushy and weird. Uh, pear crisp is a sad substitute for pear, for apple crisp. And don't even get me started on pear sauce. My mom made that once. It was bad. I'm sorry, mom, if you're ever watching this. But then I got a couple pear trees, a couple pear trees in the house that we moved into, and I realized that a a pear at peak ripeness is almost, not quite, almost as good as an apple at peak ripeness during the harvest. And man, it's so good. And so every August, our family has a good time. We harvest the pear trees. And you can see this one on the, the right is doing really great. The one on the left, though, not looking so good now that tree every spring it blooms and it's beautiful and so I spend a lot of time pruning it in March taking care of it it blooms after it blooms it leaves out and it looks really really good and there's always this promise of fruit but by about the middle of July and then August now the tree starts the leaves turn yellow and there's fruit on it but it becomes very apparent that we will not be eating this fruit It gets these weird rotten cracks, and I tried one of the pears last year. It was not good. This is a fruit tree in my yard. Its entire purpose is to provide fruit for my family to eat, and it's not performing its function. And I told Jamie a couple weeks ago, I think it's time for us to cut it down. It's hard for me to cut down a fruit tree, but it's time for us to cut it down. I expect fruit from a healthy-looking fruit tree, I believe that God expects fruit from a healthy-looking faith. As I said in my youth group when I was growing up, maybe yours too, if you're going to talk the talk, you need to walk the walk. But church, I I don't know. I I don't know that we're always perfect at that. I think sometimes we can be just as good at, at looking like people of deep faith without actually bearing fruit as the temple was at looking like a place of deep faith without actually having results. And here are a couple of the ways that I, I see the a couple of my observations. This is how I see this playing out. Number one, I think sometimes we try to look spiritual when we're not all that spiritual. And look, I get it, you, you want to be part of a crowd and part of you want the approval of others and and so you come to church and you talk in your Christianese and you know you carry your well-worn Bible into to worship and maybe you're so into worship or you pray a flowery prayer and you're just putting up a show. You might text someone during the week that's from church or a church leader and you, you text them something that sounds very spiritual. And then you turn around and you text somebody else you know who is not involved at church and your topics and your tone are very different. Or you post something on your social media that screams that you're a Christian and yet you're not really living it out. You're not bearing fruit. This reminds me of, of what Jesus' brother James says. Another verse worth, worth memorizing. James 1.27 Perhaps overused, but overused because it's so good. James 1 says this pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. When you just go through the motions of faith, you're just like that that fig tree, healthy and alive on the outside, but on the inside, where's the fruit? You might have those spiritual conversations at church, but how many needs have you sidestepped in your life this week? You might carry that Bible in to Sunday worship or show up at, you know, your Bible study, but have you really kept yourself unstained by the world? Or are you letting the values and attitudes? Like we talked about last week, as far as money and ranking others and Uh, marriage and sexual integrity and all of these things are you letting the world influence you are you keeping yourself uncorrupted from the world are you bearing fruit one that's one of the ways i think we put up these facades and and we fail to bear fruit another way i think that we can kind of be like this temple or at least like the people in jesus day looking at the temple is that we sometimes judge our, our sisters and brothers by the external markers of their lives and so we look at, you know, maybe their wealth or their possessions, but also their families or their education. And we allow the factors that the world uses to assign value be the way that we value others without looking at the fruit they're bearing, without actually thinking about the faith journey that they're on. And when someone doesn't have as nice of one of those things as you, you subconsciously look down them, on them. Jesus, you know, Jesus made it very clear. A leafy and healthy looking fig tree can disguise a lack of fruit. An ornate and imposing temple can hide a broken system. And for us today, I think a neat and tidy life can hide a hollow heart. Jesus says some more about this elsewhere. Matthew 7. He says this. He's talking to his disciples about how to discern between false teachers and real, basically how to figure out if somebody is actually one of Jesus' followers. And he says this, Matthew 7, verse 16, you can identify them by their fruit. That is the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? By their fruit, you will know them. That's the way one of our translations puts this. It's, it's the same for us today. Don't let external markers determine your assessment of somebody. Look for the fruit. Finally, I think there's there's one other way that we often, as God's people, are just like the people in Jesus' day, looking at this amazing temple and thinking it is the symbol of our faith. And and that's that's like this. If you are more impressed by a church building, church budget, church worship band, or anything else that happens there than you are by whether or not God is doing something or what God is doing in that congregation, then and you're just like the people in Jesus' day. And look, God has blessed our, our church in so many ways. We've got this beautiful building. It, it is a blessing. It's spacious and it's clean and it's well taken care of. We, we've got the property out back. We share with our community. Again, a blessing. We've got a a talented and dedicated staff. We've got a worship team that leads us well. Like these are all good things. The coffee here. Some of you are haters and you need to get over yourself because the coffee here is objectively some of the best in town. The number of people who gather here on, on Sunday mornings is, I don't know if you knew this, four to five times greater than the average church attendance in America. This is not something to celebrate. None of that should be our cause for celebration. Brothers and sisters, our cause for celebration and dedication and worship should be Jesus. Jesus only. Right? And so no matter how impressive or unimpressive our church looks to you on a particular day, no matter how unimpressive or more impressive another church looks, our purpose is not to impress you. Our purpose is to proclaim Jesus and then to help one another live in obedience to Him. And so... Stop promoting our church. Probably not what you thought you would hear this morning when you came to church, but stop promoting our church. We are not the destination. We're not the, the end goal. Stop promoting our church and start promoting Jesus. A healthy church produces healthy fruit, just like a healthy faith produces fruit. It's as simple as that. Now, as we, as we wrap up this morning, I want to read you just a little bit more in that section where Jesus is talking about fruit in Matthew 7. Back in verse 16 again, I'll read it. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Now, in our section today where Jesus is with his disciples and he goes into the temple, all this stuff that happened in in Mark chapter 11, the most important thing that Jesus was trying to communicate to his followers was that that current temple system was going away. God was closing it down, it was being ended, and God was, was bringing another one, building a new temple in its place. And the followers of Jesus needed to know that so that they could carry out their mission to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world and to to share the good news about Jesus and the kingdom of God. And so that's what the followers of Jesus needed to know, and that was the most important thing that he was communicating to them. But Jesus communicated some more things in Mark chapter 11. And so again, read this after church. I believe in you. It takes five minutes. Read this and see what Jesus was talking about because after Jesus talks about the fig tree and the temple and does all of these things. After he creates a ruckus there and curses this plant, he goes on to talk a little bit about faith. And he shares with his disciples how faith should be powerful and it should be confident and it should be prayerful and it also involves forgiveness. Basically, healthy faith produces fruit. There are results there. And so, has your faith been producing fruit lately? What kind of fruit has been? What kind of fruit has God been producing in you? What what are you seeing change about you? How are you stepping out of the standards and ideals and behaviors of this world? And what new behaviors, what things is God teaching you to do? What's growing in you? Where do you see God moving you? And what, what still needs to change? What do you maybe need to prune out of your life? I think you got some some thinking this week and I think you got some reading. Mark 11. Do me a favor and read that this week. Because a healthy faith produces fruit. Would you pray with me? God, you are good. And we are once again thankful for the truth that we find in Scripture. God, we're thankful for the chance that we have this month to walk with Jesus up toward the cross and to see the things that he taught his disciples and the actions that sometimes seem strange to us and don't make a lot of sense initially, to see how they are, are communicating and, and teaching. God, sometimes the way that you work in our lives today doesn't make a lot of sense. And so Father, I pray that you would continue to teach us patience, help us to trust you, God, continue to grow our faith and to grow fruit in us. Jesus, we are so thankful for your sacrifice. That cross at the end of this, this Passion Week was not the end, but that instead you rose again. And you offer us the gift of eternal life in your kingdom. Father, I pray that those here among us who may not know you yet, that they would respond to your offer of salvation in Jesus. And that, God, you would continue to grow us and produce fruit in our lives. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.